everybody. You are listening to the New Discourses podcast, and I'm James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, also host of the podcast, and welcome. Little housekeeping. It's been, I guess, I mean, we've kind of spaced them apart a little bit and made them fit into the space. It's been a little bit since I've actually sat down and properly recorded anything, and so I'm excited to be back here at the microphone as a piece of housekeeping. If you don't know, I have been writing a book. Um, I got pissed off in the middle of July and I decided there needed to be a definitive book that explains critical race theory all the way. So I wrote one, I wrote most of it in about a week, and then I've started to flesh that out, um, clean it up. And I'm now pretty happy with the draft that I have. So hopefully I can get it through editing and, um, get it out to you soon. It's fairly long and it's fairly detailed, uh, introduces critical race theory, explains what it is, defines it. I know we're not allowed to do that or not supposed to be able to in a multitude of ways that I think are all clear and overlapping. And then it um, explains it as a belief system and, and talks about its ideological roots, how it operates, and some things we can do about it. So look forward to that. And that's what's been the delay in recording more podcasts, except for one possible other thing, which is that I was on a flight recently, so I give a lot of talks lately. I've been invited to speak all over the country and um, lots of energy, lots of positive energy. So that's good news. Everybody should hear about that. Uh, lots of people happy to see me, lots of people happy to learn more about critical race theory, lots of people very angry about critical race theory and the related topics and uh, all over the country. And so typically I do most of my reading on these flights, which I'm flying all over the place. And recently I was on a flight uh, to probably Wisconsin or something. I don't remember where I was going for sure that time. And I was reading, I was reading One Dimensional Man for the, I don't know, the third time that's Herbert Marcuse's book. And I just kind of got sick of it and stopped in the middle. And then on another flight, I think the next flight, maybe on my way home or maybe the next flight somewhere else, I can't keep them straight uh, anymore. I was reading his Marcuse's 1972 essay, Counter-Revolution and Revolt, actually for the first time, which I hadn't ventured into his 1970s stuff yet. And uh, I don't know, I made it, it's like 180, 170 something pages. I would read it as a podcast series, but it's actually quite a bit longer than uh, an essay on liberation or repressive tolerance, which I've read now as podcast series. It's um, properly crazy, though, because you can see him seeing his revolution getting away from him in 72 when he wrote that. So in 65, he's writing Repressive Tolerance. In 69, he's writing an essay on liberation. All the exciting neo-Marxist garbage and riots and everything that happened in 67, 8, and 9, especially 68, most famously, have broken out. It looks like there's all this possibility for a neo-Marxist revolution, all this energy around his new leftism that he's generating. And by 72, it's obvious that this isn't going to happen. And he's like flipping out and um, writes counter-revolution and revolt. And it's it's fun. I was reading that and like with One Dimensional Man, I just kind of stopped. I was like, I don't want to read Herbert Marcuse anymore. <laughs> and I haven't quite regained the energy. Um, that said, this is going to be a podcast, maybe one of the last ones for a good while that I do on Marcuse. I say that we will see, I probably will do more. The, the, the big picture of course, that I've said repeatedly 
throughout the two series that I mentioned, the one on repressive tolerance and also the one on NSA on liberation, is that we live in Herbert Marcuse's world. We live in the world that Herbert Marcuse outlined and delivered to leftists in the 1960s. Those leftists mostly were young students at the time. They went on to become the professors who have created the kind of radical leftist professors who set the stage through the 80s and 90s and have created the neo-Marxist movement of today that has now burst out onto the scene like it did in the 60s. This energy is all over. We are in a credible bid for another cultural revolution right now. And it's an open question because of a variety of different forces as to whether or not this is going to get pushed back. And that reminds me, I'll probably have to do at least one more on Marcuse at some point later. But in this episode of the podcast, what I actually want to do is I want to talk thematically about Marcuse. And I'm going to read a little bit from him and a little bit from Max Horkheimer, uh, who's another critical theorist. Um, I'm not going to go like this huge in-depth longitudinal thing, uh, but I want to make a case about neo-Marxism in general, and I want to use Marcuse to do it. And there are two things that are happening at once that are of extreme prominence through the neo-Marxism of the 1960s, where Marcuse and to a degree Horkheimer are concerned. While I think you know, Theodore Adorno was doing something kind of different at that point. And you have the radical activists starting to take up with the new left stuff that came out of Marcuse's work. Um, I think there's something very important that happened within Marxian thought and Mar Marxian theory and thought is going to be a huge theme of, of, I think, what I'm going to be talking about going forward for a while. And we really have to look to the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s to see what that is. And Marcuse gives away the game, obviously, in his writing, because his writing was forming the movement that has defined the world that we now live in. And so eventually I'll have to do a podcast about what Marcuse would think about his movement now that it is bearing fruit, now that it is coming into the world fully formed, fully active. His revolution is here and you know, if you've followed the other two series, the the repressive tolerance series, or you the uh, essay and liberation series, you you hear me muse an awful lot of times about me wondering what Marcuse would think about what's going on with his movement, because it's his movement, but it's obviously also become the thing that he hates. It's very obvious that there's this weird tension there, and I I, I think I know the answer. We'll talk about that in a future episode. Maybe then we'll wrap up most of what I will say on this podcast about Herbert Marcuse. But for the moment, we're going to talk about the emergence of the new proletariat, um, which depends on understanding that neo-Marxism takes as maybe its biggest issue, the thing it hates the most, is prosperity and a flourishing society. So if you've read on my encyclopedia, my, my translations from the Wokish on New Discourses, my entries for fascism and anti-fascism, which I wrote right when all the Antifa stuff started to blow up last summer, I was still a little bit new to a lot of this deeper philosophy when I wrote that, um, so I didn't get into it to the level I think I could now if I rewrote them, but what you will see is that I said that fascism in Wokish 
means a prosperous functioning society, particularly a free society, a liberal society, a capitalist society. And if it's functioning and prosperous, that's fascism. And so this is yet another neo-Marxist theme. We kind of have to hit three, I guess, in this that are all interrelated. One, the neo-Marxists believed that capitalism is going to fail. They accepted the kind of historicist view of Marx, that capitalism is a transitory or transitional state in a progress of history, but rather than where, where Marx believed that eventually the revolutionary energy would rise up in the working class, and this was an inevitability of capitalism, is that the contradictions would become so apparent to the working class that the working class would awaken, they would adopt a class consciousness, they would enter into class struggle, and then they would create a dictatorship of the proletariat, establish socialism as a next stage of history on the way to eradicating the need for a state with a perfected society called communism at the end of history. Marx thought that this was an inevitability, but the neo-Marxists were freaked out. And to their credit, they kind of had some reason to be. They watched the rise of the Nazis. They fled the rise of the Nazis. And in the fact that they fled the rise of the Nazis, they were very worried about fascism. So the themes that you actually can get, especially if you go back and listen to the essay on liberation series that I did about Marcuse's work, they they believed that there were that the capitalism is certainly going to fail, that it's actually just a part of a longer dialectical process in the unfolding of history. But where it's going next is not certain. There are two possibilities, according to the neo-Marxists, not one. It might go into fascism. The dialectic of enlightenment is to, for reason to go into unreason and, and to, to become increasingly fascistic, ultimately, in their view. And that fascism is just as likely a state, an outcome of the dialectic of a free capitalist society of the enlightened society. Fascism is the other end point, unless socialism can save it, unless a socialist revolution can step in and liberate the world from that horrific trajectory. And so you don't just have in neo-Marxism the belief that they're walking humanity to the utopia, as you do in classical Marxism. You also have the belief that they're saving the world from fascist hell. So we're not just making our way to heaven by getting through liberation and on our way to communism, but we're also saving the world from the other possible endpoint, which is fascism and hell. And so you have a do you can see how like the religious imperative, the duties of conscience, if we were talking about this in, in First Amendment constitutional law, become super strong under neo-Marxism, where they're maybe even less prominent under Marxism in its classical sense. In neo-Marxism, it's not just your job to bring about the liberation to get to utopia. It's also your job to save the world from going fascistic. And so you have a kind of the dual-pronged heaven-hell, uh, carrot-and-stick kind of mindset on kind of the grand metaphysical level with the neo-Marxism. So this belief is one of the three, is that, that there are only two possible outcomes of society, really, uh, once it goes fully free and liberal and capitalist. It will either become a fascism or it will become 
a, it'll be saved from that by awakening a revolutionary consciousness, a liberated consciousness, a critical consciousness that will lead us into uh, away from fascism and into to, to socialism. And that's why Antifa, by the way, it's not just a communist strategy as outlined by Belladad that the communists branded themselves explicitly as anti-fascist so that people who called you know, who said that they were against the communists, they would say, well, we're the anti-fascists, so if you're against us, then you must be for fascism. The neo-Marxists actually took this all the way, took it seriously, and actually believed it. This is what repressive tolerance really starts with, saying that we're in this position in the world where we are in a constant state of clear and present danger to fascism. If you go back and listen to the repressive tolerance series, you'll hear that. He makes that argument explicitly, Herbert Marcuse does, in 65. So the neo-Marxists took it, and then Antifa is basically the philosophy of Franz Fanon and Herbert Marcuse mixed together into one um, very poisonous, dialectical, revolutionary, anarchist, violent uh, reaction to society. And um, they took this very seriously. The the, the anti-fascists as Antifa, who, who are obviously quite fascistic in their approach, believe that their ends or the, the the ends that they seek which is the the, the absolute prevention of full-blown fascism justify their means and we'll hear this from Marcuse explicitly in a moment and if you've listened to the uh, essay on liberation series you've heard it uh, so they believe they're saving the world from fascism where fascism is defined as a prosperous functioning, capitalist and liberal society. Their definition of fascism, or pre-fascism anyway, is a functioning capitalist society that's causing prosperity. And so one of the three beliefs is that there's a dual-pronged, three beliefs core to neo-Marxist thought, there's a dual-pronged trajectory for history. It might go to fascism unless it can be saved by the revolutionaries who will take it to socialism instead and save our democracy, as we hear from the Democrats, who have taken up a ton of neo-Marxism, by the way. A second belief is that the problem is prosperity. The problem is that capitalism works. The neo-Marxists hate prosperity, and that's going to be kind of the main topic of this podcast. And then what this leads to for Marcuse in particular, who turned out to be the effective architect of this, is the generation of a new proletariat. They gave up on the working class. Neo-Marxism no longer looks to the working class as its uh, kind of reservoir of revolutionary energy and of consciousness-raising activity. It now abandons them and this is where this new proletariat, there's a third belief that we need a new proletariat. This is where identity politics come onto the scene. This is where the personal is political and all that hucksterish nonsense comes into the, the picture where people who can't make it any other way except to make their personal whining and whinging into, pol into politics. Um, and that's their big, big break, as Christopher, Christopher Hitchens had it, their big chance to be a somebody. This is where this comes into play. And so that's what I want to outline. So we're going to start, I'm going to read to you a few things um, from, from these charming individuals. I'm going to start with Max Horkheimer. And this isn't actually something that Max Horkheimer 
wrote. It's something Max Horkheimer said in an interview that he gave in 1969, the same year that NSA on Liberation was written by Herbert Marcuse. So he does this interview and he's explaining how their critical theory, his critical theory, Horkheimer is the one who named critical theory. He's the one who, along with Theodore Adorno, wrote the Dialectic of Enlightenment, which Marcuse was supposed to be a part of that project by the way, but he got recruited by the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, to go fight the Nazis. And he was off doing government things in the 1940s while Adorno and Horkheimer dedicated their efforts to writing the great book of the dialectic of enlightenment to outline what neo-Marxism and critical theory really are. So Horkheimer's movement is neo-Marxism and critical theory. And Horkheimer is giving an interview and trying to explain how neo-Marxism is different, what it does, where Marx got things wrong. And in this interview, and this has been translated by somebody else from the German, which is in the interview, you you can see him speaking or hear him speaking German. And I've transcribed the subtitles. He says, this sociology went, and he means critical theory, neo-Marxism. This sociology went beyond the critical theory of society conceived by Marx in order to reflect reality more adequately. One point is very important, for Marx had the ideal of a society of free humans, or sorry, of free human beings. He believed that this capitalist society would necessarily have to be overcome by the solidarity spelled by the increasing immiseration of the working class. This idea is wrong. This society in which we live does not immiserate the workers, but helps them to build a better life. And apart from that, Marx did not see that freedom and justice are dialectical concepts. So let's, let's, let's pause without this dialectical part. Let's do that last part again. Okay. Uh, Marx believed the capitalist society would necessarily be overcome as a result of the increasing miseration, immiseration, the making miserable of the working class. And Horkheimer says this idea is wrong. The society in which we live, which Marcuse names advanced capitalism, the society in which we live does not immiserate the workers. It does not make people miserable. He says, but helps them to build a better life. And for Horkheimer and for neo-Marxists, and as the point of critical theory, that's a problem. The fact that capitalism works, that it causes prosperity, that it helps the workers build a better life, that prosperity and a functioning society arise from advanced capitalism is the problem according to critical theory. Neo-Marxism exists to examine this issue to interrogate this issue. Prosperity is the problem for the neo-Marxists. This is a really big thing because before this with Marx, industrial capitalism, especially in the 19th century, was pretty brutal. And the belief that, you know, oh, these terrible conditions that people have to work in and the child labor, and you can pick your favorite aspect of it, company towns, etc. That's all terrible. People are going to realize there's a better way. And it turns out that people found a better way 
which was, yeah, we incorporated some social safety net stuff. We figured out the ways to make capitalism more profitable to a wider number of people. We outlawed monopoly. We outlawed trusts. We did a lot of different things to make capitalism to work, to make free markets remain free and say the language that Hayek might have it or something like that. That, that when you have monopolies, they actually, when they get, when a company gets big enough, especially if it's making trust with other companies, like we're experiencing right now, again, in both the banking and the tech sectors, then they actually can exercise power tantamount to, and that will eventually get crony and collude with the state, which is exactly what we're living through again. And so Marx believed, oh, well, these contradictions of capitalist life will obviously reveal themselves to the working class. They will obviously come together in solidarity. They will obviously awaken into a proletariat that will overthrow this intolerable condition and stop their exploitation. And then that didn't happen in any of the advanced capitalist societies. Following the Great Depression, a lot of things changed. Some of those things were very left-wing projects implemented, say, by FDR. One of those things was the beginning of World War II, which changed an awful lot of things economically in addition to socioculturally. Uh, A lot of things were going on, but what these guys were sitting here by 1969 looking at, they were saying, wow, our society here is actually working. Capitalism free liberal capitalism is actually working. And it does not immiserate the workers once you put up some bumpers around things like monopoly. Once you install a little bit of uh, safeguards, legal safeguards for workers to protect themselves against exploit the worst abuses of exploitation, the worst abuses of, um, you know, maybe injury or being poisoned or whatever else at their at their, their factory, if you put in some safeguards and you make sure the market stays actually competitive and free, capitalism doesn't just work, but it allows the workers to build a better life. And this is their problem. Just to finish the quote. Um, the, although it's tangential, it's worth bringing up. Um, Horkheimer goes on to say, and apart from that, Marx did not see that freedom and justice are dialectical concepts. Now you should go listen to my long Hegel podcast, listen to all this stuff I've talked about, about dialectic so far. Dialectic means dialectical concepts means in contradiction to one another and that you will then bang those things into each other to create some false synthetic answer that that, that retains the essence of both while lifting above, while abolishing each and lifting up above either one. And I understand them on a higher plane. The word that the Marxist translated into English for this was sublation. It will sublate to a higher level. So freedom and justice are contradictory opposites. And in Horkheimer's words, the more freedom, the less justice. The more justice, the less freedom. So for Horkheimer, you can't have a free society and a just society. So justice obviously means something different than what we, than what we think. It doesn't mean people getting, you know, the, the, the fair outcome of their behavior, whether that's good behavior, it would be just for them to be rewarded bad behavior. It would be just for them to be punished. He says freedom and justice are opposites in the sense that the more freedom, the less justice, and the more justice, the less freedom. In other words, the more justice, the less freedom. What he's saying is that whatever justice means for him, it requires the restriction of freedom. And in fact, you can't have justice unless you get rid of freedom. You can't have perfect justice unless you get rid of freedom. Hold on to that when you start thinking about 
all this call for racial justice, for example, and critical race theory. Critical race theory wants racial justice, which means you can't have freedom because these are dialectical concepts, according to the neo-Marxism out of which it grew. Horkheimer continues, the critical theory which I conceived later is based on the idea, later than the Marxian critical theory, that I conceived later is based on the idea that one cannot determine what is good, what a good, a free society would look like from within the society we now live in. We lack the means, but in our work, we can bring up the negative aspects of this society, which we want to change. So what he's saying is that the point of a critical theory is you can't actually conceive of what a good society looks like on the terms given to you by the existing society. This society itself is wholly corrupt. It cannot be redeemed. It cannot be incrementally changed. Incremental changes will only reproduce more of the same crackpot society that you have to break free of if you want to break free of it. Critical theory says if you want to break free of the pattern of the existing society, you have to think on completely different terms. But this being the 60s, this is postmodernism's already coming onto the scene. Adorno over here in 1966, three years before this was written, or has been said, this was an interview, three years before this was said, Adorno's writing Negative Dialectic, which says, oh, you, you, we can't really do that. He's He's got, I forgot the name of the essay off the top of my head. I've cited it a couple of times, but I can't think of it at the moment. He's Adorno's got this statement saying that he, uh, that, that you can't have a positive, you, there's no positive image that can be cast of the utopia. It can only be expressed in negative terms. This is where Marcuse talks about negative thinking becomes necessarily becomes positive uh, in Essay on Liberation. This is where later we're going to read from Henry Giroux talking, if you go to my, again, translations from the Wokish and read the entry for Utopia, pick this up from the critical pedagogy guru of the of the U.S., Henry Giroux, uh, who imported critical pedagogy really into the United States and is the father of critical pedagogy, and he brought the pedagogy of the oppressed into the into, into American education. This man probably did more damage to two generations of our children than any other human being alive. And uh, he says repeatedly that what utopia really means is the, it, it's not that you can say what it looks like. He's, he's channeling this neo-Marxism. He's, it's, you can't, and he quotes them, by the way, he cites Adorno, he cites uh, Marcuse when he does this, he cites Horkheimer. You can't really, you can't express it in, 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 in terms we understand now. It is the possibility, which is, of course, what Marcuse also refers to as certain historical possibilities which have become regarded as utopian possibilities in repressive tolerance. And so you have this view that they don't know what utopia is going to look like, and they're actually mad at Marx because Marx did. Marx, he says right here at the beginning, had this ideal of a society of free human beings. And he's like, no, 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 freedom and justice. Mm, freedom and justice are actually dialectical concepts, and Marx didn't, Marx didn't understand that. So what Marx, I, he envisioned a society of free human beings, but we aren't going to have a society of free human beings. Horkheimer is actually saying that because we can't have justice if we have a society of free human beings. So we don't even know what a real free society would look like because our terms, including our terms of justice, are wrong. We can't understand that from the society in which we now live. Therefore, we, because we lack the means, 
what we can do instead is we can bring up the negative aspects. We can complain. Critical theory is about complaining about what they don't like, about what isn't Marxian enough, about what isn't bringing about the revolution, about whatever. In other words, it's creating that immiseration, not in the working class now, but mostly in the educated uh I don't even know what to call them. I, I called them the overproduced bourgeoisie or whatever. The educated intelligentsia, if you will. Those people can have the negative aspects of society pointed out to them by the critical theory. And we're working toward a new proletariat here. So you're going to also be able to find it in people who are pissed off about the current state of society. So you're going to see that in like the racial minorities, as we hear from uh from Marcuse quite explicitly. He doesn't really hold back. And this is where you're going to get stuff like critical race theory, critical gender theory that goes on to be queer theory, um, the post-colonial theory, even focusing on things like indigeneity and your identity as Western versus Eastern or Southern, global East, global South, I mean. And so this is the milieu. This is what neo-Marxism or critical theory is really about. Right. And I said we were going to talk about the ends justifying the means when I was talking about Antifa a few minutes ago. And this is, I'm just going to quote from NSA on Liberation now. I'm going to read to you again from Herbert Marcuse's Essay on Liberation. Again, this is 1969, same years as this interview. And what he says to kind of back up that last point that we, we can't actually understand the good society or whatever. So we're going to kind of do both of those two ideas back to back. The, the, we can't understand what a good society would look like from within the existing society, he says, and the ends justifying the means being tied into this. Um, he says, the proposition, the end justifies the means, is indeed, as a general statement, intolerable. But, yeah, we're, the ends justify the means is an intolerable, uh, intolerable idea in general. But, and now he's going to give you the special case why it works for him. The proposition, the end justifies the means, is indeed, as a general statement, intolerable, but so is, as a general, as a general statement, its negation. In radical political practice, the end belongs to a world different from and contrary to the established universe of discourse and behavior. But the means belong to the latter, in other words, the existing society, and are judged by the latter on its own terms, the very terms which the end invalidates. So what he's saying, let me break that down before I carry on. What he's saying is, you say the ends don't justify the means. We say that's an intolerable concept, the ends justifying the means. But here's the trick, he says. We're judging the means according to the existing society, which we see is bad and in need of rejection. A great refusal is his actual terminology for that. And we will judge the ends in a different paradigm, in a different world that we have created with a new sensibility, as he calls it. And so we can't tell if these means that we judge in the existing society are actually bad, even though they look bad on these terms, because when we get to the ends, we'll have different terms, different universe of discourse and behavior. And from that perspective of the accomplished revolution, maybe, just maybe, the means will look reasonable and good. So we can't judge the means from the situation that we're in. This is 
Critical theory, which I conceived later, back to Horkheimer, he conceived it in 1937, by the way, in traditional and critical theory, is based on the idea that one cannot determine what is good, what a good, a free society would look like from within the society which we now live in. We lack the means. So Marcuse goes on and says in Essay on Liberation, for example, assuming an action aims at stuff. Assuming an action aims at stopping crimes against humanity committed in the professed national interest, and the means to attain this goal are acts of organized civil disobedience. You might think of COVID right now, for example. Um, In accord with the established law and order, not the crimes but the attempt to stop them is condemned and punished as a crime. Thus, it is judged by the very standards which the action indicts. So he, he, this, the, the, obviously the, the vax mandates and things like this are a poignant example of where power can get corrupted, and that's the thing he's trying to lean on. That's his mot versus his bailey, which is the idea that if we have a communist society and we uh, everything's perfect, then that justifies whatever radical antifa action we have to have uh, to get there, like burning down and looting Starbucks and things, which probably Amazon... Amazon probably profits, by the way, from the destruction of, of Target and and uh, Walmart and everything else in these cities that are having all the shoplifting and the looting and the arson and all that. I'm just pointing that out. There's a, a, just a thing to point out there that Amazon actually would benefit from that because if Target shuts down, people are going to buy that stuff from Amazon instead. But anyway, the point is that they're saying the vax mandates and the COVID policy, etc., says, oh, well, here, look at Australia. We have all these laws right now, and those laws are obviously unjust. Canada, for example, as well, California. And you have to be civilly disobedient against those laws to challenge them. So civil disobedience is is the thing he's bringing up because people are going to agree with that. It's a Mott argument, whereas the Bailey argument is his stupid communism. Um, And so he says, but, you know, the, the law would say you can't violate the COVID policy. And the civil disobedience itself is indicting that law in the first place. So you, of course, have to go along with that. So you can see where he's getting muddle-headed because he thinks the entire prospering, prosperous, successful society is, in fact, in need of indictment, is, in fact, a road to fascism unless communism intervenes. So he doesn't understand his own Mott and Bailey argument here where he's falling into a double meaning. Of course, civil disobedience against unjust laws is a good thing, but his claim is actually that the prosperous society itself is all unjust laws. And so civil disobedience in the name of communism is necessary. The the Mott and the Bailey are visible when you learn to see them. The existing society, he says, defines the transcending action on its own terms. A validating procedure entirely entirely legitimate, even necessary for this society. See, this is where we're all jumping ship here. And When he says this society, he means a free liberal society with capitalism. He's not talking about a state that is now going bonkers trying to install a repressive tolerance nightmare in his own image um, to enforce whatever Great Reset or whatever they're trying to pull here. And he says that the way this is supposed to work, he says one of the most effective rights of the sovereign is the right to establish enforceable definition of words. And then he goes into this whole thing about the definitions of words. And so big point to take away from that, though, is that 
besides the Mott and Bailey argument about communism versus, you know, the application of unjust laws, actual fascism, because he conflates liberalism and fascism, freedom and fascism are the same thing. A prosperous society, a functioning society is a proto-fascistic state to Marcuse. So this is where his equivocation happens. This is why his argument seems plausible, but is bogus. Um, but the big takeaway here is not just the whole ends justify the means things that we we're actually talking about, but rather more interestingly, his point that you cannot judge the existing society from within it, because if the existing society is repressive or oppressive or unjust or illegitimate, then its terms will be repressive, oppressive, unjust or an illegitimate. And so the society itself becomes a self-referential wheel of injustice and oppression and repression. And it's when it's out of control, it's, he's got a point, but that's the mod. And when it's a free liberal society instead, and he says, well, it's not communist, so it's terrible. That's the Bailey. And you think, well, he can't really mean that. No, he actually does. Um, he actually does. Uh, his whole point in repressive tolerance, let me see if I can actually find this in repressive tolerance. I hadn't intended to read this in repressive tolerance. Um, let me find it if I can. He actually says that it's, yeah, here it is. Okay. Liberating tolerance. And this is from Marcuse's essay, uh, repressive tolerance from 1965, liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. As to the scope of this tolerance and intolerance, it would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda of deed as well as of word. The traditional criterion of clear and present danger seems no longer adequate to a stage where the whole society is in the situation of the theater audience when somebody cries fire. It is a situation in which the total catastrophe could be triggered off any moment, not only by technical error, but also by a rational miscalculation of risks or by a rash speech of one of the leaders. In past and in different circumstances, the speeches of the fascist and Nazi leaders were the immediate prologue to the massacre. The distance between the propaganda and the action between the organization and its release of the people had become too short but the spreading of the word could have been stopped before it was too late. If democratic tolerance had been withdrawn when the future leaders started their campaign, mankind would have had a chance of avoiding Auschwitz and a world war. The whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger. Consequently, true pacification requires a withdrawal of tolerance before the deed. At the stage of communication and word, print and picture. Such extreme suspension of the right of free speech and free assembly is indeed justified only if the whole of society is in extreme danger. I maintain that our society is in such an emergency situation and that it has become the normal state of affairs. Different opinions and philosophies can no longer compete peacefully for adherence and persuasion on rational grounds. The marketplace of ideas is organized and delimited by those who determine the national and the individual interest. In this society for which the ideologists have proclaimed the end of ideology, the false consciousness has become the general consciousness from the government down to its last objects. 
the small and the powerless minorities which struggle against the false consciousness and its beneficiaries must be helped. Their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties which grant constitutional powers to those who oppress these minorities. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes a withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise, and that liberation of the damned of the earth presupposes suppression not only of the old, but also of their new masters." Withdrawal of tolerance from regressive movements before they can become active, intolerance even toward thought, opinion, and word, and finally intolerance in the opposite direction that is toward the self-styled conservatives to the political right, these anti-democratic notions respond to the actual development of the democratic society which has destroyed the basis for universal tolerance. The conditions under which tolerance can again become a liberating and humanizing force have still to be created. When tolerance mainly serves a protection and preservation of a repressive society, when it serves to neutralize opposition and to render men immune against other and better forms of life, then tolerance has been perverted. On and on he goes till he says that you have to censor and pre-censor and yada 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 in order to accomplish this. So he definitely thinks that we live in a state of clear and present danger of tipping into fascism at any moment. That's how Nazis happened. We could have avoided Auschwitz in a world war if we just would have prevented Hitler from having the ability to speak. And so it is today in the entire post-fascist period. Everything's like a theater where somebody has just screamed fire. That's his actual belief about a free, prosperous society. That's his actual belief. So he's conflating the two. So let's not think that I've lost my mind here, or that I misrepresented an argument which I actually have represented correctly. So in Essay on Liberation, this is where that set of beliefs, those two beliefs, okay, so what, what were they? Let's back up a half a second. What were those beliefs? One, that you can't understand the existing society from within that society. Sorry, you can't understand what a better society looks like from within the existing society. You can only reproduce more of the same. So you need a critical theory to get outside of that. In order to do that, you need a completely different way to think. And as I said, that what you see is that the, what's blocking this, when we didn't come back to this one yet, this was Horkheimer, we haven't talked about this with Marcuse yet, is that, is that what's blocking this is prosperity. People are actually prospering. People are not miserable. People are actually building a better life. That's what Horkheimer complained about in 69. So here in 69 also, in an essay on liberation, this is what we hear Marcuse say, the same thing, the same problem. He says that this is a kind of a long piece. I know I just read a long one out of repressive tolerance. It is not simply, he says, the higher standard of, liver, of living, the illusory bridging of the consumer gap between the rulers and the ruled, which has obscured the distinction between the real and the immediate interest of the ruled. Marxian theory soon recognized that impoverishment does not necessarily provide the soil for revolution, that a highly developed consciousness and imagination may generate a vital need for radical change in advanced material conditions. The power of corporate capitalism has stifled the emergence of such a consciousness and imagination. Its mass media have adjusted the rational and emotional faculties to its market, and its policies and steered them 
to defense of its dominion. So now he's saying that basically the entire capitalist and marketing industry have created a gigantic propaganda campaign in order to keep people participating in capitalism to make them think that they're being made happy by being able to go to work, make money, and buy things that they want in ever-increasing quantity and quality. The narrowing, he says, of the consumption gap, meaning between rich and poor, has rendered that, so this is the workers building themselves a better life, by the way, has rendered possible the mental and instinctual coordination of the laboring classes. The majority of organized labor shares the stabilizing counter-revolutionary needs of the middle classes. The majority of organized labor shares the stabilizing counter-revolutionary needs of the middle classes. Get that? Prosperity, the good life, building a better life, makes the working class and the poor not revolutionary. And in fact, they're stabilizing forces in society, stabilizing counter-revolutionary needs that they share with the middle class. He says this is as evidenced by their behavior as consumers of the material and cultural merchandise because they can buy stuff they want and it makes them happy by their emotional revulsion against the nonconformist intelligentsia. In other words, freaks like him that want to have orgies with Klaus Schwab or whatever. Conversely, where the consumer gap is still wide, where the capitalist culture has not yet reached into every house or hut, the system of state... Somehow I don't think he means Appalachia, by the way. Speaking of huts. The system of stabilizing needs has its limits. The glaring contrast between the privileged class and the exploited leads to a radicalization of the underprivileged. This is the case of the ghetto population. Oh, he wasn't talking about Appalachia. He wasn't talking about the coal miners in, in, in West Virginia. Those are stabilized people. This is the case of the ghetto population and the unemployed in the United States. This is also the case of the laboring classes in the more backward capitalist countries, so Solidarity Internationally, which is of course part of the point of this essay. By virtue of its basic position in the production process, by virtue of its numerical weight and the weight of exploitation, the working class is still the historical agent of revolution. So he's saying because it's big, because of it, it's the it's the exploited workers who make the stuff because of it's a lot of people and there's all of them are exploited and being cheated. They're still the historical agent of revolution, like Marx said. But the problem is, they're not. He says, by virtue of its sharing, the working class, by virtue of its sharing the stabilizing needs of the system, it has become a conservative, even counter-revolutionary force. So the working class didn't do what Marx predicted. It did the opposite. That's what he's saying. Objectively, in itself... Labor is the potentially revolutionary class. Subjectively, for itself, it is not. So if they only understood their real conditions objectively, the working class would wake up and want to overthrow the system. This is why I say that MAGA is in fact class consciousness. They see the corrupt, technocratic, one-party, overstate regime screwing them over, I did not say the F word, on every level, and they have awakened to the fact that they are deplorables, that they are the, the outcasts, that they are not the genteel, the educated, the professionals, the fancy pants of the society, and they're pissed off. But they want freedom. They don't want communism. And that's a big problem. 
So objectively, in itself, labor is still the potentially revolutionary class, but that's not good enough because subjectively, for itself, it is not. It likes its life. It's built a better life. It's counter-revolutionary now. It likes its stuff. This theoretical conception has concrete significance in the prevailing situation in which the working class may help to circumscribe the hope and the targets of political practice. In other words, the working class is going to block the commies, and he knows it, and he doesn't like it because it's Marxism upside down. In the advanced capitalist countries, he said, the radicalization of the working classes is counteracted by a socially engineered arrest of consciousness. So it's socially engineered that they will like their lives. Building a better life isn't in and of itself a good reason to keep doing what they're doing and like it. No, it's socially engineered arrest of consciousness. They would know better if it wasn't for the marketing department tricking them into thinking, wow, you can buy all this other cool stuff and you have a job where you can make enough money to buy it and it, you actually like it and you enjoy your working class life with your cool stuff that you can afford because you worked hard and you earned it. Maybe it's not, you know, high society, but you're happy. And every now and then you can go to a damn ball game and you got your TV and you can watch some shows you like, and you got your VCR and you can and camera and you can record your kids or whatever and be happy, share the video with your family and all your stupid working class things that you value. You don't even know it's an engineered state, an engineered arrest of consciousness, state of false consciousness, socially engineered arrest of consciousness. That's what's stopping the working class from knowing objectively in itself that it's supposed to be revolutionary because subjectively for itself, it's been tricked. That's Marcuse. Prosperity tricks the working class into being not revolutionary. Pretty sick. A vested interest in the existing system is thus fostered in the instinctual... I skipped a part, sorry. Socially engineered arrest of consciousness. Let's do that sentence again. In the advanced capitalist countries, the radicalization of the working classes is counteracted by a socially engineered arrest of consciousness and by the development and satisfaction of needs which perpetuate the service servitude of the exploited. Okay, so this is a point he rails on this earlier in the essay. So your, your needs are getting satisfied. You're building a better life. But he says that the consumer society, as you say, you're a working class dude, as you meet your needs, so you, you know, you've got your TV, you've got your comfortable house, you got your new couch, you got your stuff you like, you got your singing bass on the wall, whatever the hell it is that he's sneering at you about. Well, now you need a bass boat and now you need, you know, a flat screen, and now you need this, and now you need that, and now you need these, you know, balls to hang on the back of your truck, or whatever other thing he's near. He's saying that capitalism, consumer capitalism, is endlessly making more and more and more stuff, so that even though you now have a comfortable life, you still think you need more stuff. You are de the development and satisfaction of needs which perpetuate the servitude of the exploited. So now you have to go to work to keep making money so you can buy stuff and say, send your kids off to some school or some summer camp or something that they didn't really need because bless them, you know, so now you have to work a little harder. You have to like Go buckle down and work a little bit more so you can get more of the stuff that you like. And he says that this is a socially engineered arrest of consciousness. Capitalism is making you run the wheel a little harder and a little faster so that you can keep getting more and more and more and more and more of the stuff that it's convinced you that you want. And in fact, that because your basic needs are met, your deeper, these new needs are being generated. And he says this is going to run on endlessly until either we destroy all sustainability, big key word in the present, or fascism, 
comes in. So we're either going to have a total calamity, total collapse, climate change, oh no, or we're going to have a situation in which fascists take over because that's what capitalism does. And you are being tricked into it as the working class. And instead of being a socialist communist revolutionary, like you should objectively in itself, you're thinking only for yourself in terms of the heteronymous needs that have been interjected into you by the evil, evil capitalist system. That's literally his argument. That's literally what he thinks of you working class, because you're not doing his bidding and being a communist revolutionary for him. So he says, a vested interest in the existing system is thus fostered in the instinctual structure of the exploited and the rupture with the continuum of repression, a necessary precondition for liberation, does not occur. It follows that the radical change, which is to transform the existing society into a free society, must reach into a dimension of the human existence hardly considered in Marxian theory, the biological diet dimension in which the vital imperative needs and satisfactions of man assert themselves. We've discussed this at length. I'm not going to deal with that discuss disgusting part uh, again, but obviously um, it's obviously something that we've talked about in the Essay on Liberation podcast. You should go check that out. Inasmuch as these needs and the satisfactions reproduce a life in servitude, this does matter. A liber liberation presupposes liberation presupposes changes in this biological dimension. That is to say, different instinctual needs, different reactions of the body as well as of the mind. The qualitative difference, he says, between the existing societies and a free society affects, remember, he has a critical consciousness, he's a critical theorist, so he can imagine a free society, but you can't because you're within it, affects all needs and satisfactions beyond the animal level. That is to say, all those which are essential to the human species, man as rational animal. All these needs and satisfactions are permeated with the exigencies of profit and exploitation. The entire realm of competitive performance and standardized fun, there's your ball game, all the symbols of status, prestige, power, your members only jacket, I guess, you working class slob, of advertised virility and charm, your testicles hanging from your truck. Those are virility. Charm, I guess, is just going to be in your, uh, you know, knockoff cologne you bought at the gas station, you working class schmuck. Of commercialized beauty, don't bother doing your hair and putting on your glamour girl or your cover girl or whatever. Commercialized beauty, it's fake, it's not real, you're still not upper class. This entire realm kills in its citizens the very disposition, the organs for the alternative, freedom without exploitation, yeah, communism. And so exactly what I said, exactly what I said. He's blaming the prosperity, the development of a society in which the working class can meet its basic needs, in which it can be happy with that which it has in which it has a consumer life because it can afford things that it enjoys. And that's stealing the revolutionary energy. And the problem is that the society itself is too prosperous. That's actually what Marcuse is mad about. Prosperity is the enemy of neo-Marxism. A functioning, flourishing society is the enemy of neo-Marxism. But also we have the other theme 
The other theme here is that the proletariat is not going to be in the working class any longer. These stabilizing forces are too strong. I can actually back this up by a little bit more of what he has to say. Um, same essay. Uh, more of this biological dimension to just kind of touch on it. This is a little earlier in the essay, actually. To the degree to which this foundation is itself historical and the malleability of human nature, sick. The malleability of human nature reaches into the depths of man's instinctual structure. Changes in morality may sink down into the biological dimension and modify organic behavior. Once a specific... Remember, this isn't a section of the essay called A Biological Foundation for Socialism. Once a specific morality is firmly established as a norm of social behavior... So now we're going to be really concerned following this with norms of social behavior... It is not only interjected, it also operates as a norm of organic behavior. The organism receives and reacts to certain stimuli and ignores and repels others in accord with the interjected morality, which is thus promoting or impeding the function of the organism as a living cell in the respective society. So if you can make people feel guilt and shame all the time, for example, then they're going to functionally change how they behave tremendously. That's neo-Marxism. In this way, a society constantly recreates this side of consciousness and ideology, patterns of behavior and aspiration, as part of the nature of its people. And unless the revolt reaches into this second nature, into these ingrown patterns, social change will remain incomplete and even self-defeating. The so-called consumer economy, this is more to our point today, and the politics of corporate capitalism have created a second nature of man, which ties him libidinally and aggressively to the commodity form. What does that mean? He's saying that the consumer society, the capitalist society, has made it so that your sexual energy, your libido, your desire, and your aggression are now tied up in commodities. You go to work so you can make money, and you do your job, and you work hard, and you don't live out your actual passions. You don't live out, you know, whatever those passions happen to be because you have to make money so that you can buy commodities. You know, you can make nice stuff in your house. You can give your kids a comfortable life and maybe a good education. The need for possessing, he says, consuming, handling, and constantly renewing the gadgets, devices, instruments, engines offered to and imposed upon the people for using these wares even at the danger of one's own destruction has become a biological need in the sense just defined. So you care more about your television or your blender or your toaster or your grill or your hot rod or your Camaro or whatever it is that he's looking down on you and sneering about. You care more about constantly consume, possessing, consuming, handling, and renewing those things. You need a, It's not enough to have a blender. You have to get a new blender with a more powerful motor. Even if it's at the risk of your own destruction, say your car is too much of a wild race car or whatever, this has become a biological need. In a sense, he means biological. You can't get along without it. The second nature of man thus militates against any change that would disrupt and perhaps even abolish this dependence of man on a market, ever more densely filled with merchandise. So he's saying that you, we, don't know how to live in a society where we don't have merchandise and that we've been conditioned to believe that we have to, and we kind of can't, like preppers are like kind of the only ones, and I still think it's pretend in most of their cases, it's very LARPy, 
But he says it's second nature. This isn't a matter of competence, though. This is a matter of psychology. And that if you were to take away people's comfortable existence, and remember, we're talking about the working class here. If you took away their comfortable existence, if you took away their stuff that they finally worked hard and were able to put in their house, well, uh, they wouldn't be able to tolerate that. And it becomes second nature for them to protect the idea that they're allowed to have stuff. He says, abolish his existence as a consumer, consuming himself and buying and selling. The needs generated by this system are thus eminently stabilizing conservative needs, the counter-revolution anchored in the instinctual structure. The market has always been one of exploitation and thereby of domination. That's what he says anyway. He doesn't understand positive sum circumstances. He apparently doesn't understand the law of comparative advantage, which is a fundamental law of economics. It's always just been one of exploitation and thereby domination. Ensuring the class structure of society, he says. However, the productive process, process of advanced capitalism has altered the form of domination. The technological veil covers the brute presence and the operation of the class interest in the merchandise. It is still necessary to state that not technology, not technique, not the machine are the engines of repression, but the presence in them of the masters who determine their number, their lifespan, their power, their place in life, and the need for them. Is it still necessary to repeat that science and technology are the great vehicles of liberation and that it is only their use and restriction in the repressive society which makes them into vehicles of domination? So, as a result of this line of thinking, Marcuse no longer believes that the working class works as a proletariat. It has a second nature to protect its own now comfortable class interests. That better life it was able to build, as Horkheimer complained about, they want to protect it. And it's their second nature to not only protect it, but also to be able to continue to work hard to buy things that they enjoy and to enjoy their life. Maybe you're going to get to buy instead of the cheap beer, which is beer, you should be happy. Maybe you get to buy the good beer this week. Oh no, that is the consumer society keeping you on the treadmill. Meanwhile, you have snots like Marcuse sneering down at you for buying beer in the first place instead of some fancy French wine or some something. It's, it's, these people are terrible. But this is where we get the identity Marxism of today. This is where it comes from. Because the working class from Marcuse, Marcuse understands, and Horkheimer alongside him understand, neo-Marxists start from the position that, oh no, Marx believed that we were going to have a proletariat in the working class, and they're not going to be there for us. They've been turned conservative. Egads. They're MAGA now. The working class went MAGA, went full freaking MAGA. They're not our they're not our work, they're not our proletariat. They're not our revolution. We have to look somewhere else. And that's what neo-Marxism in the 1960s is actually about. That's where the identity Marxism of today, the identity politics, the critical race theory, the queer theory, the critical gender theory, that's where all this stuff gets its deeper roots. He needs to find a place where the consciousness can be awakened. So what does he write? For Marxian theory, the location, or rather contraction, of the opposition in certain middle-class strata and in the ghetto population appears as an intolerable deviation, as is the evidence on biological and aesthetic needs, regression to bourgeois or even worse, aristocratic ideologies. But in the advanced monopoly capitalist countries, the displacement of the opposition from the organized industrial working classes to militant minorities is caused by the internal development of the society. In other words, that it makes society work 
for the working class. The working class is able to have upward mobility. They join the middle class as maybe a lower middle class, or even they work their way into the full middle class because they're often making more than the educated people who resent them because they majored in something stupid like gender studies or English. Let me part, go back and start that sentence again. But in the advanced monopoly capitalist countries, the displacement of the opposition from the organized industrial working classes to the militant minorities is caused by the internal development of the society, and the theoretical deviation only reflects this development. What appears as a surface phenomenon is indicative of basic tendencies, which suggest not only different prospects of change, but also a depth and extent of change far beyond the expectations of traditional socialist theory. Under this aspect, the displacement of the negating forces from their traditional base among the underlying population, that means the working class, rather than being a sign of the weakness of the opposition against the integrating powers of advanced capitalism, may well be the slow formation of a new base, this is the new proletariat, bringing to the fore the new historical subject of change, responding to the new objective conditions, which, quali which qualitatively differ. No, sorry, with qualitatively different needs and aspirations. We need a new subject of change, new historical subject of change, a new proletariat. Responding to the new objective conditions, a capitalism that works for most people, then that has risen most people out of poverty. Your so-called Stephen Pinkerian optimism, where everybody's rising out of poverty. Well, not everybody's rising as fast, so we're going to have a new historical subject of change. And he says, well, the ghetto populations, the militant minorities, there we have some, the unemployed, he said somewhere else. So Marcuse recognizes a certain affinity then between his ghetto populations and his radical students, who are mostly white, um, that, Mar that Marxian theory can't actually articulate clearly. This is where he's talking about the displacement of negating forces from the traditional base. And so what he actually figures out is that neo-Marxism needs to be developed in the universities and brought to the militant minorities, the capital B black, politically black, as Nicole Hannah-Jones had it. And that's going to make our new proletariat to replace the stabilized working class. And in the process, we're going to invent identity Marxism, which is what we have today under the term woke, identity Marxism. Uh, he says the preceding attempt to, this is near the end of the essay, by the way, um, I've skipped a lot of the essay, the preceding attempt to analyze the present opposition to the society organized by corporate capitalism was focused on the striking contrast between the radical and the total character of the rebellion on one hand, and the absence of a class basis for this radicalism on the other. So we have a lot of revolutionary energy, but it's not a class-based thing. This, again, the working class has been stabilized by advanced capitalism. It did not immiserate the workers. This is what neo-Marxism, my point in this podcast is neo-Marxism hates prosperity because prosperity makes the working class successful. It gives the working class a nice life. And my God, do they resent the fact that they lost their revolutionary base. And this is why these sneering Marxists in the universities, these sneering professionals in the so-called genteel class hate the working class when it's successful. If you're not a revolutionary, a Marxist on their terms, they hate you. And it's because this, because you've been stabilized and how dare you have a life? How dare you have stuff? How dare you live a life that you enjoy and that you want to preserve and protect and pass on in slightly better fashion to your children? How 
dare you have upward mobility when you were supposed to be our cannon fodder in the first place? And now we have to go look for cannon fodder somewhere else. Let's go to the ghetto. That's neo-Marxism in the 1960s. He says, this situation gives all efforts to evaluate and even discuss the prospects for radical change in the domain of corporate capitalism, their abstract, academic, unreal character. The search for specific historical agents of revolutionary change, a new proletariat, in the advanced capitalist countries is indeed meaningless. Revolutionary forces emerge in the process of change itself. The translation of the potential into the actual is the work of political practice. So the point of the personalist political is to start finding who out, who's going to be these new revolutionaries. And as the society changes, you constantly are finding the new revolutionaries. And just as a little, uh, sorry, and just as little as critical theory can political, there's got to be a mistake here. And just as little as critical theory can political, can political political practice orient itself on a con- there has to be a word wrong this is marxist.org you can't expect them to have great proofreading uh, and just as little as critical theory can it must be be political practice uh, i don't know what it's supposed to be orient itself on a concept of revolution which belongs to the 19th and early 20th century and which is still valid in large areas of the third world there's is there even a verb here just as I'm not going to do it again, because it's not the point. The concept envisages the seizure of power in the course of a mass upheaval led by a revolutionary party acting as an avant-garde of a revolutionary class and setting up a new central power which would infiltrate or initiate, I'm sorry, the basic social changes. Even in industrial countries where a strong Marxist party has organized the exploited masses, strategy is no longer guided by this notion. Witness the long-range communist policy of popular fronts. They're looking into... Uh, kind of cultural, pop culture uh, domains. And the concept is altogether inapplicable to those countries in which the integration of the working class is the result of structural economic political processes. They were talking about the West here. Sustained high, these are the problems the neo-Marxism sees, how the working class got stolen. Sustained high productivity, large markets, neo-colonialism, administered democracy, and where the masses themselves are forces of conservatism and stabilization. It is a very, it is this very power of this society which contains new modes and dimensions of radical change. And like I said, this is where, okay, so we're, we're really saying the working class can no longer be considered the basis for a proletarian movement. You're not going to get your Marxist revolution that way because they've been bought off by the success of capitalism. He, of course, throughout the parts we read earlier, sees this as like this brainwashing process. The false consciousness has become the the, the only consciousness or whatever he said. Um, prosperous and functioning societies become the problem. He says, in fact, that's a, a, the, the only moral thing to do is to reject prosperous and well-functioning societies uh, in this essay. Um because prosperity and functional society, here we get Antifa, prosperity and function, uh, functional societies steal away the revolutionary potential. So he says instead that we have to figure out how to take the leftist intelligentsia, professors like him, students that he's training to become the next generation of professors, so that they can go on to awaken the radical militant minority populations and apparently the homeless. And so here's how he phrases this. 
but while the image of the libertarian potential of advanced industrial society is repressed and hated by the managers of repression and their consumers, it motivates the radical opposition and gives it its strange and orthodox character. Very different from the revolution at previous stages of history, this opposition is directed against the totality of a well-functioning, prosperous society, a protest against its form, the commodity form of men and things against the imposition of false values and a false morality. This new consciousness and the instinctual rebellion isolate such opposition from the masses and from the majority of organized labor, the integrated majority, and make for the concentration of radical policy politics in active minorities, mainly among the young, middle-class intelligentsia, and among the ghetto populations. There's his new proletariat. So he just said... The integrated majority, that's your big working class, your middle class, etc. They're integrated into the society. They're successful in the society. They built a better life. Not revolutionary anymore. Mm -mm, no, you find the concentration of radical politics in active minorities, mainly among the young middle class intelligentsia, students they can brainwash, and among the ghetto populations. Here, he says, prior to all political strategy and organization, liberation becomes a vital biological need. So you can brainwash these well-to-do white kids in college into being neo-Marxists and they don't know how to function unless they can remake society for the poor uh, ghetto population, as he calls them. And then you can piss off the ghetto population until they become radicals. And you can bring these two things in together to, to create a new revolutionary identity political movement. That's what he's after. That's the new proletariat. That's the mess in which critical race theory, queer theory, etc. grew. The identity politics revolution begins here. An identity Marxism is what he's building. It is, of course, he says, nonsense to say that the middle class opposition is replacing the proletariat as a revolutionary class and that the lumpen proletariat is becoming a radical political force. What is happening is the formation of still is the formation of still relatively small and weakly organized often disorganized groups which by virtue of their consciousness and their needs function as potential catalysts of rebellion within the majorities to which by their class origin they belong and that's in this sense the militant intelligentsia has indeed cut itself loose from the middle classes so there's your college students that they're brainwashing into hating america has cut itself loose from the middle classes and the ghetto population from the organized working class because the organized working class has been stabilized by society. So you're going in into these kind of union type situations and labor situations and you're pissing off all the minorities so that they no longer have working class solidarity or whatever they were supposed to have under Marxism or so that they no longer just get along with their other working class friends because you're, you're now saying, oh, well, they think down of you because of, say, systemic racism or you're being held back. You're not a manager because of systemic racism, blah, 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 blah. You can see the play. And so you're cutting the manipulable student, upper middle class student base out of loving America by brainwashing them in the schools. And then you're pissing off the racial minorities and the working, working classes. So they'll break away from the organized working class or basically from normal everyday people. And rather than having further integration, which is the last thing they want, you're now going to create a revolutionary um, engine out of these two groups. But the trick is going to be forcing them together. He says, but by that token, they do not think and act in a vacuum. Their consciousness and their goals make them representatives of the very real common interest of the oppressed. 
And um, of course, he's looking for that energy. Uh, he also sees that there's this contradiction between these two groups. And he says the ghetto population of the United States constitutes such a force, a revolutionary force confined to small areas of living, and again, I've skipped in the essay, confined to small areas of living and dying, it can be more easily organized and directed, so East LA or whatever. Moreover, located in the core cities of the country, the ghettos form natural geographic centers from which the struggle can be mounted against the targets of vital economic and political importance. Target, maybe, Walmart, and Amazon's there to mop up. In this respect, the ghettos can be compared to the uh, Faubourgs of Paris in the 18th century, and their location makes further spreading and contagious, or for spreading and contagious upheavals, riots. Remember, this was in 69, 67, and 68, and 69, all saw massive race riots in various cities. Cruel and indifferent privation is now met with increasing resistance, but it is still largely, but its still largely unpolitical character facilitates suppression and diversion. The racial conflict still separates the ghettos from the allies outside. While it is true that the white man is guilty, it is equally true that the white men are rebels and radicals. So he's like, we do have whites on our side. However, the fact is that the monopolistic imperialism validates the racist thesis. It subjects ever more non-white populations to the brutal power of its bombs, poisons, and money. So we're looking at, you know, the, the wars being fought in Southeast Asia, maybe in the Middle East or whatever. And somehow, because those people happen to not be white, we're now going to say, see, it's the same. We're going to go into East LA and tell the, the blacks and the Hispanics there, see, it's the same. Those people don't, those people aren't white and we blow them up. It's only a matter of time. Do we blow you up, homie? And the next thing you know, you've got a radicalized base, radicalized with communist agitprop instead of something real. Thus making even the exploited white population in the metropoles partners and beneficiaries of the global crime. Class conflict, see, whitey over here, he, same, he doesn't mind all the bombing of brown people, you're brown, whoops, here we go. Now you've got class, you got racial class conflict you're generating in the cities, he's laying out the strategy. Class conflicts are being superseded or blotted out by race conflicts. Color lines become economic and political realities, a development rooted in the dynamic of late imperialism and its struggle for new methods of in, uh, internal and external colonization. The long-range power of the Black Rebellion is further threatened by the deep division within this class, the rise of a Negro bourgeoisie, Larry Elder, and by its marginal in terms of the capitalist system, social function. The majority of the black population does not occupy a decisive position in the process of production. And the white organizations of labor have not exactly gone out of their way to change this situation. You can see the seeds of critical race theory. Oh, you're supposed to be for us. You look at mapping the margins. Oh, yeah, GM, look how great you are. This Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 and demarginalizing uh, the intersection or whatever she called it. Oh, look at you, GM. You're so good. You're so anti-discriminatory. You have lots of black men and you have lots of white women. So you hire blacks and you hire women. But where are your black women? You can see the identity politics being born here. You can see the intersectionality being born here. It's just disgusting because um, the white organizers of labor, not white organizations of labor have not exactly gone out of their way to change the situation. That's exactly what happened, by the way. Critical race theory came out of critical legal studies by saying the same thing. You have this neo-Marxist movement taking over law or trying to take over law, making a lot of headway and developing a very leftist legal theory, uh, critical legal studies. And then pop in 1980, either five or six, Crenshaw 
reports it differently in two different books, and I don't know which one's true yet. Um, uh, you have a group of proto-critical race theorists show up and say, why is critical legal studies movement so white? Why is the why are the white organizations of critical legal studies not going out of their way to change the situation? Why are you excluding us? <sighs> critical race theory being born right here. In the cynical terms of the system, a large part of this population is expendable. Just keep saying nasty stuff, Marcus said. That is to say, it makes no essential contribution to the productivity of the system. Consequently, it, you know, is this honest history? Is it you're saying that that people don't think that black people contributed? Herbert Marcuse. Consequently, the powers that be may not hesitate to apply extreme measures of suppression if the movement becomes dangerous. The fact is that at present in the United States, the black population appears to be the most natural force of rebellion. And so this is where he goes on elsewhere in the essay to kind of say it doesn't really make any sense to smash these people together with the white intelligentsia in the colleges, but what they share in common is a rejection of the existing society. And so if we can foment that, if we can get that common basis and build solidarity in the rejection of the existing society, the rejection of the prosperity prosperity of the society, we can build a new proletariat that has the theoretical engine in the intelligentsia and the radical force of the ghetto populations. So here we see the forging of the new proletariat. Here we see the production of the new revolutionary class that Herbert Marcuse is seeking, that the neo-Marxists are seeking. And so you see what the critical theory has become. The critical theory says, oh, we can't see, we can't see what a good society looks like from within the society. That was Horkheimer. Marcuse echoes it. We can't see that. That's what critical theory is all about. But what we can see are the negative aspects. And one of the negative aspects that they that they lock onto is that capitalism is working. It is causing the working class not to be miserable. Lenin said accelerate the contradictions, which meant make the working class more miserable while they see more rich people near them so that they can be led to hate rich people, and then that hate can be directed against the kulaks, who are the most successful people in their lives, and then the kulaks can be destroyed, which is exactly what happened by under Lenin. Uh, you know, so now we're going to do that in a different way. We're going to, um, we're not going to do that with the working class. We're going to do that now in other dimensions of life. We're going to channel the contradictions of prosperity, but the working class is not being made miserable enough. So we can't use the working class because they're not miserable. We're not, we're not, they're not miserable. We, we, where are we going to look? That's what they're, they're, they're searching. Where are we going to look for this energy, this revolutionary energy? Because the working class isn't it. They are building a better life. They are becoming stabilized. They are integrated into the middle class. They're becoming a lower middle class. So fuck them for ruining our revolution. And they're terrible. And I hate them for having things and for being happy. And they're not actually happy. And blah, blah, blah. This is their awful mentality. And so they're staring and they're saying, well, prosperity is the problem, the functioning society. And Marcuse has that long thing of oppressive tolerance where, oh, that's just going to turn us into fascism. The next thing you know is we're going to be fascist if we keep going down this road. We have to find a new proletariat. And then he says, aha, we could use the ghetto population. They have the energy. They're mad. They're in the 1960s, certainly. Certainly, even, even Martin Luther King got pretty radical through the late 60s. His letter from Birmingham jail isn't exactly like 
pleasant. He said very many radical things after. He got very, very upset. He became very frustrated with the white liberal presaging many of the ideas of critical race theory himself, even though his legacy is all rooted somewhere else, which is in the universal I have a dream speech. The universal appeal to humanity was where his legacy lives, but he had his dark revolutionary side too, which the activists today are trying to revolutionize while they say that I have a dream and the content of character thing is a white thing because white people like it. No, everybody likes it. That's why it's his legacy. That's why we know who Martin Luther King is beyond beyond being a blip of history is because he appealed to that. They don't understand this and they want to highlight his revolutionary side. But yeah, in the 60s, yeah, there's a lot of revolutionary energy, but they're also he's also saying, well, nobody's paying attention to him. They don't have the resources. They're too expendable. We could just spray them with fire hoses. We could suppress them. We could beat them, whatever. And looking back at the earlier parts of the 60s, looking back at the 50s, for sure, you see that attempt. But this was unfolding. This was no longer being moral, being considered morally tenable in our society. This was moving, and not thanks to neo-Marxists. Not thanks to neo-Marxists. Thanks to that positive legacy of the civil rights movement characterized in that contents of character rather than color of skin remark of the I have a dream speech. He's like, well, the energy's there, but we don't have, they don't have the basis necessary. They don't have it, but who does? White, upper middle class college students. Everybody loves a student. He talks about the student movements and how the student movements are a natural place and people, you know, that nobody wants to turn on the students and da, 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 da. And he's like, wow, if we could just cram these people together by taking the critical theory and cultivating it in these people and then setting them up as champions for the ghetto populations and getting so that the ghetto populations will start to not only be angry about the contradictions of their lives, just like Lenin wanted out of the working class, out of the peasants, I should say, really, in Russia, just like the Marxists thought would come out of the working class. If we can just get them to come in and agitate and race bait and accelerate those 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 grievances, grievance studies, right? Using critical theory, then we can create the basis for a new revolution. That's the point of Herbert Marcuse's work. That project went on to create critical race theory, probably more than any other thing. But in addition, the dimensions of queer theory that we deal with, with all of the trans and the cis-heteronormativity and the 185 genders and the 3,604 sexualities and all these videos from libs of TikTok where we see these poor people and their weirdness and everything else and all their genders and all this stuff and how they're oppressed and all their sexualities and what this means and how they're this kind of, this, they have this kind of orientation with regard to romance and this kind of orientation with regard to sex. And sometimes it changes on Tuesdays, but only at three o'clock and only if the moon is full and all of these weird things. And here's a flag I made for it. All of that stuff really has some deep ass roots. The whole Palestinian thing ties into this. They've co-opted a lot of these ideas. They've bartered back and forth with these ideas. <laughs> they gave lots of money. They gave lots of stuff. Her, uh, Angela Davis was radicalized twice, she says, once by Herbert Marcuse, once by the Palestinians. There's been a revolving door there since the 70s as well. The whole East versus West, colonial settler, blah, blah, blah. It's the same dynamic. It's exactly the same thing. And all of it ties back to this concept that Marcuse was laying out, that if we can somehow connect the upper middle class 
liberal, leftist, I should say, intelligentsia in the universities to the wretched of the earth or the damned of the earth, these um, various dispossessed populations, say the ghetto population in the United States, the dispossessed sexual minorities, the angry feminists, he names these elsewhere, the feminists, he says very specifically. And if we can bring the critical theory to these people and we can cobble them together around a common notion of liberation and a common understanding of power dynamics of oppression, this is where we end up with intersectionality later, then then we have our new proletariat, and that's the world we live in today. And this is one of, besides repressive tolerance and some of the other factors and features, besides the idea that sustainability has become the other new sensibility that he's calling for and now rules our corporate sphere, this is the world we live in today. We live in Herbert Marcuse's world. We live in a neo-Marxist dominant world. We are in the midst of an attempted neo-Marxist cultural revolution in the West, using these ideas, hoping to implement these ideas on different levels at different places for different reasons, some of which are at war with one another. But what it all comes down to is that neo-Marxism, by its very nature, because it seeks above all else the revolution, the Marxism, the communism, but thinks that Marx misunderstood the nature of advanced capitalism, hates prosperity. Prosperity and a well-functioning society are their enemies. And those are the things that they have to destroy. And if you understand their two-word phrase, disrupt, dismantle, disrupt and dismantle, I guess that's three words with the and, disrupt and dismantle is their project, is their goal in every domain. And what they're disrupting and dismantling is Anything functioning, well-functioning, anything that creates prosperity, especially for any of the so-called damned of the earth or wretched of the earth or the so-called working class, anything that squeezes your life makes you more miserable. And what they're going to do is you become more and more and more alienated, more and more and more angry, is they're going to force feed you critical theory from the leftist intelligentsia, these overpaid, uh, overpromoted, overproduced bourgeois jackasses from universities who've learned this stuff uselessly otherwise to try to foment this cultural revolution in this way. And it's happening primarily in our schools, of course, because children become very easy to program into this kind of way of thinking. That explains what's going on in the world on a pretty good level right now. And you can read it directly or hear it directly from Horkheimer, Marcuse, and then just kind of pay attention to what they're saying and then look forward into time from the 19th, end of the 1960s to now and see how it manifested. And that's what we have to resist because it's still communism. It's still the goal to get to communism by making people hate the life that they live, hate the society that they live in, become angry and alienated against it, and to try to become a revolutionary force to completely change everything rather than to value freedom, freedom and justice are dialectical concepts. Remember, we'll finish there. Horkheimer said, freedom and justice are dialectical concepts. So we're going to have to start trading out some of that freedom so we can have justice, racial justice, social justice, climate justice, gender justice, trans justice, whatever justice you want to make up, we've got to start trading out freedom for justice. And they're at that stage right now. That's what we live in. 
people you have to resist. This isn't going to work this time either. It's not going to work this time either. We have to resist. <laughs>